0: Just one verse, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And tonight I want to um, just introduce a series that's going to take us through uh, a few months. Uh, We're calling it, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Before I begin, I do need to say this. Um, The illustration I gave this morning about the husband coming out of the driveway, I really, I I didn't do that. Um, Somebody said to me afterwards, you do realize we all think that you're the guilty one. Um, I've I've done other things that I'm not saying, but... I've never done that, so all right. It was completely hypothetical. I didn't have any of you in mind either, all right. Back to the text. Paul exhorts Timothy to rightly handle the word truth. The King James, I think, says rightly divide the word of truth. But sadly, sometimes as Christians, we we get that wrong. And sometimes we use the Bible as a a mantra or a talisman. We just find a verse that we like; it's our favorite verse, but we've not really paid attention to the context and not really too interested in what it actually means. We just like how it applies to ourselves. Sometimes our favorite verses can be woefully misunderstood and harmfully misapplied. Now, recently, I was thinking about this. Somebody sent me an article that was recently published in Christianity Today. And the article was about the fact a, a survey was taken by um, a, a, a U-Version uh, Bible app of the most popular, most well-loved verses amongst Christians in Africa. And the top 10 verses um, are very familiar to us. Jeremiah 29/11 was number one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Isaiah 41, 10, which Stephen's going to preach next week. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world of course Romans 8:28 we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose this one did take me by surprise John one. 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God Matthew 6:33 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well 2 Timothy 1:7 for the spirit of God gave us uh, that God has gave us for the spirit of God gave us does not make us timid it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Joshua 1.9, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God be with you wherever you go. Now, don't misunderstand. These are all great verses. They're all in the word of God. They are all true, and therefore, they're all precious. But each of these texts, uh, we have to understand, comes in a particular context. And so as I read the article, it was interesting. They interviewed several African Christian leaders throughout the continent, most of them familiar that are connected to Langham Partnership, which is a fairly solid evangelical group. And they asked, why do you think these 10 verses? One person wrote and said, the verses in this list summarize the needs and the aspirations of Christians in Africa. Hope in God's promises, trust in God's provision, and security in the midst of uncertainties. Somebody else said that they show the social context and the people's common experiences. For instance, Christians in times of political unrest and economic suffering often find comfort in memorizing these particular verses. Someone likewise responded this way It is likely that these verses feature prominently in Africa because of the challenging socioeconomic and socio political circumstances in many African countries. Many Christians are enduring hardships, and they resort to God's promises to provide security, provision, prosperity, and protection. We struggle against many societal ills, such as corruption, as well as other issues, including spiritual oppression and false teachings. And listen to this comment that they made. We generally have a transactional relationship with God, and most of these verses will be taken as promises rewards for good religious conduct most do not know how to interpret the bible this person said for themselves so they rely on what they hear from pastors given the rise of neo-pentecostalism in africa in the reality that approximately 85 percent of pastors do not have formal training the popular verses would include those on this list unfortunately this means that biblical literacy tends to be shallow in many contexts And the harder truths that lead to spiritual maturity tend to be ignored since they are not meeting a felt need. So as I read this, I thought about the fact it would be helpful to take several Sunday nights to look at each of these verses. First of all, to help us to appreciate these verses, to know exactly what they mean, to touch upon our own experiences and how that enters into how we often interpret Scripture. Thirdly, to move us beyond what might be the hindrance of familiarity that is sometimes we assume we know what it means one of my favorite movies movies is the Princess bride and in the prince's bride you have this guy i don't know his name but uh, he's a bit of a scoundrel and he keeps using this word inconceivable and this other guy who i don't know his name I remember his name either but he says to this fella you keep using that word i do not think you know what that word means well i saw this meme last week You keep using that verse, I do not think it means what you think it means. Sometimes we grab on to truths and we miss the main point. If I can illustrate, um, Anton's going to preach on this one, Jeremiah 29.11. It's a great verse. It's a great truth, but too often times it's applied in an individualistic way, missing the contextual and the theological center. In other words, this verse, which tells us that God has great plans for us. Uh, In the context, it teaches that there are serious consequences to disobeying God's word. Jeremiah 29.11 is given to those who are in captivity because of their sin. And so it teaches that God disciplines his people and that in that discipline, there is hope. So it's a great verse. My plans for you are good, it's in the context of discipline. So rather than claiming this verse as you head off to a new school year, assuming that everything is going to be happy and easy, it helps you to face trials knowing that through life, that though life is hard, God is good. Though you may have that verse as a bumper sticker on your car, you might still have a fender bender tomorrow at Galuli's with all these passing motorists calling by, looking at you, and giving you bad signs. (laughs) Philippians 4.13, Quinn's going to be preaching on this in April. It's a frequent go-to verse for athletes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somebody, I will not mention his name, but he's in the Cable family, (laughs) sent me a message a little while ago just before I ran a marathon. And he said, go strong, Philippians 4.13. And he was just put a smiley face after that. So I wrote him back and said, I'm feeling really nervous, so I'll be wearing my Philippians 4.13 bracelet. <laughs> it's good natured humor, but sadly, many disabuse this text, ripping it out of context. And so we want to be, make sure that we're rightly handling the word of truth. The goal in this, by the way, is not to be negative. The goal is not to be polemical, Uh, it's not to be iconoclastic and just bash, but the goal is to help us to rescue these glorious texts from oftentimes a man-centered prosperity plagued enslavement. As this one leader recognized, so many of these verses come about because of a prosperity theology. And when they're trues, these are truthful verses, but what do they mean in the context? So we want to free them from cultural baggage, and so as we teach on this, I trust it will be a help to us. Well, Paul was concerned about that with Timothy, and he writes to Timothy. Paul is writing his last inspired letter. He's writing to Timothy, and soon he's going to have his head severed from his shoulders, and he's passing on the baton to Timothy, and so he's He knows that Timothy is pastoring this church in Ephesus that Paul had spent three years at. Paul knows that Timothy is facing a very challenging situation. He knows that Timothy is facing false teaching. He is facing false gospels. He is facing the temptation in the church to factionalism. He knows that Timothy is going to suffer as he perseveres in the ministry. Yet he tells him in this epistle over and over again in different ways that he must persevere, and he can by God's grace. He opens the chapter, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and he talks about being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So he says, Timothy, you can persevere in the gospel by the grace of God. He reminds him of Jesus Christ himself who suffered. in Verses 8 to 13, and then he exhorts Timothy that amid the flood of falsehood, Amid the flood of foes in the church, amid the flood of various fables and folly, you must be motivated by one thing, Timothy. You must be motivated by this, to be approved by God. And he says, Timothy, one way you're going to be approved by God is by rightly handling the word of truth. That phrase, rightly handling, again, sometimes translated rightly dividing the word of truth, is a phrase that means literally to, to cut a straight line. And he's saying to Timothy, when it comes to God's word, you want to you show it great respect, and you want to cut a straight line with it. You don't want to veer veer off the text. You want to veer off the truth. Stay on the line. My dad was a great carpenter, and, and one, of the, one of the things I didn't inherit from him was that. And my dad could cut a straight line, and it didn't matter how many how many times he drew a straight line and I would try. I couldn't keep to the line. Well, when it comes to the word of God, we need to keep on the line. And that's what he's saying here to Timothy. Because keeping on the line of scripture, as we stay straight on scripture, it'll help us to live straight lives. And so, Timothy, make sure that you rightly handle the word of truth. You need to make sure that you understand truth, that you expound it accurately, and that you apply it faithfully. There's many applications, but there's one major interpretation. Handle this accurately, and the problems that Timothy and the church were facing in Ephesus was because people were not rightly handling the word of truth. And one of the challenges faced by the conservative evangelical church in our day is this mishandling of Scripture. Scripture. Back in 1907, um, C.I. Schofield, who, of course, produced the Schofield Reference Bible, wrote a book called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And I have that book, and I've read that book. And I read it years ago, and uh, and, and, and and his whole point of that book was, from 2 Timothy 2.15, we must rightly rightly divide the word of God, uh, rightly divide the word of truth, we must rightly interpret it, And he said the only way to rightly interpret it is by saying there are seven divisions. There are seven dispensations. Well, years later, I read another book by John Gerstner, who was the mentor of R.C. Sproul. And the name of his book was Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth. And Gerstner has this thick volume just showing the error of that approach to Scripture. Keith Matheson wrote a book years later called wrongly dividing the people of God. And he went on to say this, he said, because we're wrongly handling the word of truth, because we're wrongly dividing it, we're dividing God's people. So what Paul says is this, I'm okay if the church has a division between truth and error, but I don't wanna see division between believers. And so rightly handle the word of truth. We want to do that. We want to help in this series to model accurate interpretation and kind of rescue these great verses and apply them to our lives. We want to stay focused on God's word and cut a straight line with our life as we are rightly handling the word of truth. You know, back to Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.13 is not a verse for athletes. I lost a lot of races quoting Philippians 4.13. And we actually cheapen the Bible sometimes. You read the context. Paul's writing this in prison. He could care less about rugby. Whoops. Let me pick another one. How about cricket? Cricket. Running. <laughs> All right, enough. <laughs> but Paul's writing in prison, and he says two verses earlier, I've learned whatever state I am to be content. He's saying, I can handle a tough situation because of Christ. So we want to rescue these texts that point us to Christ. I'm going to be preaching in a couple of weeks from Philippians 4 6, a great verse about don't be anxious in anything, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. That verse has been wrongly used to guilt people who have concerns. That text is not saying that. That text is not saying it's wrong. He's not saying it's sinful to be concerned. He's not even saying it's sinful to worry. He's saying it's sinful when you don't turn to prayer. We need to rescue these texts. Because the fact of the matter is, the word of God is precious, but it can be be used in a dangerous way. You want to rightly handle the word of truth. So we trust that in this series we will learn to treat the Bible with great respect. We will pay attention to the author's intent and to his purpose We'll pay attention to the larger context of the passage. We'll pay attention to the actual meaning of words. We'll pay attention to the larger flow of Scripture. And by the way, we're going to do all that in 20 minutes. I've got five minutes left. But this is the most important thing. In all of these texts, I trust that we'll learn to see that regardless of the text, in some way, it points to our hope, it points to our Savior. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is not to be treated as some kind of a spiritual mantra, but rather as God's self-revelation that leads us eventually to his fullest revelation in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever your favorite Bible verse, wonderful, but make sure that that verse is leading you to where it was intended to lead you, which is not to yourself. To Jesus Christ, even in this passage, before Paul says rightly handle the word of truth, what does he say? He says in verse eight, "Remember Jesus." All of our text, all of our favorite passages, let us make sure that we're remembering Jesus. And then, as we listen to these texts and we learn from them, we're equipped to live for the Lord with the assurance that because of His death, burial, and resurrection. We can stand accepted before God. We can stand one day at the judgment and be approved of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would just grow our love for your word. Thank you for 50 years of that in this church. And Lord, we pray that we would um, see more and more in the scripture. Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. So, bless this series. Help us to learn to more accurately handle the word of truth, that we might be approved before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to go to prayer. We're going to.